And then my bank, NatWest Bank, you know, wrote to me and said, you're very happy, we've got to stop broking. I'm very happy to give you a, an expert review of your portfolio. Oh, that would be nice. You know, so I, I trudged along to see them. And they said, you know, oh, you've got eight very well chosen. But, oh, I don't think much of No, no, we don't like rank at all. Oh, no, no, no. Really? No, no, no. no, no not on our list at all. Oh, dear. I, you know, well, we think you ought to sell that. But, of course, it went, went tenfold. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for a free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst. Podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Paul Hodges. Paul, are you ready to join the mission? I'm delighted to join. Thank you for the invitation. I am excited to have you on and we're going to have some fun chat. Let me introduce you to the audience for a moment. Paul Hodges is a trusted advisor to major companies and the investment community and has a proven track record of accurately identifying key trends in global marketplaces. He is chairman of New Normal Consulting and a global expert with the World Economic Forum. His consulting work focuses on the major paradigm shifts taking place in the global economy, in demand patterns, reshoring of supply chains, renewable energy, circular economy, advanced manufacturing, and financial markets. He is a regular speaker at international and industry conferences. And where I heard him was speaking on a podcast. So Paul, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world. Well, the way we look at it is that I worked, we all, our team worked at senior levels in the chemical industry around the world. Companies that you know and maybe love, like BASF, uh, Shell, I worked for ICI, uh, Lionel Barzell, these BP, these, these companies. And what we realized over the years is that the chemical industry has a unique vantage point in terms of the global economy, because we're right in the middle of the value chain. So we had to look over our shoulder at what's happening upstream in oil and gas, which means you have to know about geopolitics and what's going on there. But also you have to look downstream at what's happening to all this stuff when it gets to the car manufacturers, the consumer industries, and so on. And we see things happening around six to nine months before Wall Street and everybody else. Mm. And so that's how we make our calls. And we usually get told, you don't know what you're talking about. Most famously, when we were talking about great financial crisis coming in 2008, I'd be saying, oh, you really don't understand. No, no, we really, really, really do understand about housing and autos, and there's going to be this financial crash. And of course, there was. That was really how we catapulted into working in the financial community, because after that, people kind of wanted to know what it was all like. You know, there's a, there's a question that I, I have that I was just thinking when you were speaking, it's like, when the, let's say the sustainability or the ESG group gets to really put a crimp on the flow of oil, what's going to happen to the plastics industry and how, how are we going to substitute the products that people are consuming that have petroleum or plastic as a, you know, let's say petroleum as a source? Is there a substitute now or where does that go? 
Well, I think that where we're going, it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant question. And yeah, we'll find out over the next five to 10 years the answer. My guess at it, having worked on this area now since 2016, mm. when WEF brought out the new plastics economy, is that we're not going to get rid of crude oil altogether or gas. I don't think that's possible because there's so much of our economy bound up in it. What we have to do is we have to reduce our usage of it. And similarly with plastics, we don't want to get rid of PVC windows, PVC pipes, water pipes, and all of that sort of thing. It's very very valuable. But what we do want to get rid of is the single-use plastics, the plastic packaging that you go to the store, you you, you all this mountain of plastic packaging and so on, you put it in plastic bags and so on, and then you throw it away. That is you've got to get rid of. And that is actually a very large volume. Polyethylene, which is the largest plastic in the world, polythene, no, no other people, out of the 20 million tons, about two thirds of that is single use packaging. Mm. And the answer to that question is recycling. That what we have to do is instead of throwing it in the sea, I mean, 10 million, 12 million tons a year gets thrown in the sea at the moment, one way or another. Ridiculous. Bad for the fish, bad for marine life, bad, bad for everything. So we have to get to a new world where we actually start recycling which means we have to get together the brand owners, the retailers, the plastics companies, the waste companies. We're talking about waste. Plastic is not a waste. Plastic mm. is a resource. And you know, we don't think about throwing away iron. We recycle iron. We recycle metals. Why on earth aren't we doing that with plastic? And there is, excitingly, now a UN conference bringing up a law on marine pollution. And the brand owners are all committed to this, WEF and others are. So I think over the next three to five years, we will see most single-use packaging disappearing, and it will be recycled. And that will that will solve the problem. I remember when I was a kid and my neighbor, I used to go sleep over his house on Saturday nights, and his parents allowed us to have one bottle of Coke on that Saturday night. We went out into the garage, and there was a crate of 24 Cokes or whatever. They were only like seven ounces, and they Ooh. were returnable glass bottles. And <laughs> You know, we used to have a world of, you know, returnable almost Mm. everything. So maybe it's time to go back to that. That's interesting. Well, I I had a very interesting conversation. I'm sure he won't mind my my saying with a a senior friend in PTT, Thai company, uh, where we were doing a project together, talking on exactly this subject. And he said, you know, when I was young, he said, my mother used to send me with a banana leaf to the shop to buy rice. And I'd come back with the rice, he said. And then, very excitingly, he said, sometime in the mid-1960s, we actually got it in a plastic bag. And so I didn't have to go and get the banana leaf, and we washed the plastic bag, and then we used it again. And now, he said, we we just get all these plastic bags and we throw them all away. So he said, laughing, as everybody in Thailand does, if I have to go back to using the banana leaf, I know how to do it. Yes, we have a lot of uh, good kind of home remedies and simple ways of dealing with things in Thailand. I just... I fear that for, you know, let's say in the developing markets, emerging markets, mm. they're just craving development, which mm. is what plastic ends up, you know, being, of course. My yeah. father had a PhD in organic chemistry and he went to work in 1965 at DuPont. All and he, right, worked yes. in the, he worked in the labs with polymers and mm, then right. he went, he went to sell Basically, he sold plastics to mainly the automotive industry in the 70s and in the 80s and in the 90s. And then he retired. But the the point was, is that towards the end of his career, he worked on recycling and 
it was hard, you know, I mean, it just, it just, it was really hard to get the economics working. And I've recently seen some documentary in the US where they're saying, stop recycling. We're not doing anything with the plastic that you're sending to our recycling place because we can't for whatever reason. And I was like, okay, that's a little scary. What is the state of, you know, recycling these days? Is there still an opportunity? You know, there, are, there are people with vested interests who will find anything to call it a problem. At the end of the day, you're dealing with a new industry and there are going to be bumps in the road. Mm. You know, I, I was, I was, I was joined ICI, which is the you know, largest company apart from DuPont in the chemical industry, as you know, and we were, we were pioneering PET at the time. And all we had to do was we had to take on glass bottles and we had to take on polyester or polyester had to replace cotton and all these big, you know, big hairy advances and so on. And of course it didn't go smoothly. Nothing mm. ever does. But at the end of the day, if your logic is right and if you're persistent, you tend to get there. And recycling has now moved from a fringe activity to something that a lot of people now believe needs to happen. And so now we're, you know, I, I, I go through the sort of four or five questions of life. You know, why would you do something? What do you have to do? How do you do it? When do you do it? And who? Now, we've gone through the why and the what. We know the answer is chemical recycling, plastics recycling, and so on. Okay, so now we have to decide, how do we do that? Who does it? You know, is it the plastics companies? Is it the waste companies? Is it local authorities? You know, somebody's got to get in a room and get all that sorted out. Boring and everything else, but that's the next stage. And then when? And we know when we've got to do it. We've got to do it by some of it by 2025, some of it by 2030. Mm. Okay, fine. Come on, guys. That's Time good. to get moving here. <laughs> okay, before we get into the big question, given your experience in demographic trends, you know, there are so many different things going on. We have Thailand is is aging for sure. Our population growth has been very slow here. We know, you know, there's trends going on in China. Japan, we know, has gotten really advanced in the aging cycle right now. Maybe you could give us some insights as to what you're seeing about demographics in Asia. Right. Well, I think the the issue to explain this is that economists tend to look at money supply and they say, oh, it's all about money supply. You know, Friedman came up with this thing, you know, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, which is actually wrong, unfortunately. It's a correlation, but it's not causation. What you have to look at is after the war, for reasons which we don't fully understand, but it happened, we had this baby boom around the world. And in the States, for example, we had more than 50% more babies born in the 1946 to 64 period than in the previous 18 years. If you look across the G7 countries, you know, the wealthiest countries in the world, you didn't have 50%, but you had a sort of 12, 15% increase. Now, if you think about that, what that means is that after the war, when you know, Europe was literally bombed to pits. There was bomb sites everywhere. The states hadn't been bombed, apart from Pearl Harbor, of course, but it had transferred all its consumer production and fridges and so on into tanks and warships and so on. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of new supply around. So you got all this demand and you had inflation. By the time you got into the 1970s and then the 1980s, the oldest baby boomers, those born in 1940s, 1950s, were moving into employment. And so you now began to sort of, you've gone up this peak 
of inflation around 1981, 1982, and so on. 1983 was the crossover where the average boomer became 25. So they'd now done, been to university, they'd been to technical college, whatever it was, they were out now, they were producing, and of course, they were also consuming. They were settling down, they perhaps they were having families, they were buying houses, they were buying cars, and so on. So you got into a 20-year super cycle. The world has never seen this before. And you know, my generation, your, your generation, we essentially, economic policy went on autopilot because every year you had more people going into what we call the wealth creator generation, 25 to 54. Aha, this one thing that's different now from then, which is when I joined ICI, we were told you're very lucky to join ICI because you're going to retire at 62, but normally you retire at 65 and you'll probably die at 66. So you'll actually get three more years on the golf course. You know, this is a great advice. I was actually told that. They were wrong at the time. But we don't actually die, average, at 65. We die at 80. Now, does that mean that everybody continues to consume as they did after the age of 55? No, they don't. They can't. A, they're not having children anymore. B, they already own most of what they need. I mean, we moved from the UK to, to Portugal. We bought some new saucepans because we had a different type of hob. You know, we had, but that was all, 100, 100 euros. We didn't need new sofas. We didn't need new beds. We already had them and so on. So, you know, and if you look at the data, by 1775, consumption has dropped by around 40%. So you say, well, why didn't we have a big slowdown? Why didn't we adjust to this and so on? Well, because the central banks took this stupid idea of Friedman about it being, you know, we, we can create inflation. They said, therefore, we can create, you know, just by boosting the money supply. Well, here we are 20 years later, and we've got a whole load of debt. Now, coming back to your point, what's the position in Japan and China? Japan is, I think, risking now a major financial implosion. Because the way I look at it, simple man, you've got a binary result. Either they let the the 10-year rate move up beyond half a percent, in which case rates will go to three or four percent. They won't stop at three or whatever, mm. at which point they're bust. Because and the Bank of Japan, after all, owns 100 percent of many of the Japanese government bonds, and it owns an awful lot of shares as well. So it's going to have to do a lot of selling very quickly. Or it sticks with this, and we have a repeat of what we saw in quarter three last year, where the the yen goes from 120, 130, the dollar up to 150. And it won't stop at 150, it will go to 200 or whatever. So you're caught between either massive rise in interest rates or massive devaluation. Not a very good outcome. Similarly, China. China follow, you know, and this is all due to Ben Bernanke. If you read Shirakawa-san's you know, autobiography, it's quite clear that Ben Bernanke, even before he went to uh, went on to the Fed was going around with this stupid idea that the Fed can, by printing money, can avoid recessions. So you've got Galbraith, who wrote the, the history of the 29 crash, and says it was wild speculation. Mm. But Anki says, no, 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 it wasn't wild speculation at all. It was the monetary policy. So if we get monetary policy right, you can speculate as much as you like, dear people. That'd be wonderful. We don't worry. We can, we've had 20 years of it. So now we're at. And what he did in China was even worse because he encouraged what had happened in the States with subprime, but subprime on steroids. 
So you have 29%, almost a third of China's economy, dependent on housing. Tens of millions of empty apartments. And because of China's particular position that nobody actually owned any property at all until 97, 98, that sort of time period, there was lack of experience about house price and so on. You've got people who were quite prepared to go and buy a property before it had been built and when it wasn't, and to buy, to buy a property and hold it, even though the developer had stopped building. Oh, it doesn't matter. I've got, you know, I've got friends, uh, Chinese friends, who haven't been worried about what, you know, the fact that this apartment is half built. Oh, no, 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 it's okay. It's fine. But, but what happened in the last six months was a fantastic loss of confidence in the Chinese government. The incompetence of zero COVID was one thing, but, you know, okay, maybe you could justify that and so on, so forth. Failure to use mRNA vaccines and so on, again, you know, very nationalistic, but that's that's China for you. But now this total incompetence about opening up, and so the government has actually lost a lot of confidence. You talk to a lot of senior people in China, they don't believe that the Communist Party can necessarily get it right. So now you have a potential big debt crisis, two biggest debtors in the world, Japan and China, they're sitting there with assets that aren't worth the money that they've been lent on. Mm. Now, this reminds me, on a much smaller scale, obviously, in the past, of the Latin American debt crisis of Brazil and Argentina, which took about 10 years to resolve. And obviously, Japan and China are much bigger debt things. And I, you know, I don't want to panic people, but I do think that we need to look over our shoulders at what's happening, because it's quite clear these people don't know what they're doing. They've been very clear about that for quite some time. And it's quite probable that there could be a major, major issue here. And so I'm not saying this is going to happen tomorrow and so on, but I'm saying we're getting to the point where any prudent investor is going to start to say to themselves, you know, just going to have another five, give me five minutes. I'll just want to have a check on this. Let's talk about Japan just because that's also, you know, let's say the U.S. is going to work with Japan in one way or another to try to help them resolve the issue. But you've talked about two different scenarios. One is the yen collapsing because the international investor loses confidence. And the Mm. other option was raising rates, I believe, which would Mm. prevent the yen from collapsing, but would also put tremendous pressure on the Japanese economy, particularly considering the amount of debt. What is your kind of feeling or prediction about what direction that'll go? I tend to think that in the end, the market will win out. And that, you know, so that the judgment call, which can of course be wrong, is that I think interest rates are headed higher. Mm-hmm. And the reason they're headed higher is because the world is at war, effectively, with Russia, and various people are taking various sides on this. And wars are always inflationary. Mm. And you know, we're about to give you an example of this. Somebody was telling me the other day in the military that at the moment, Europe is supplying about 15,000 artillery shells a month to Ukraine. America is supplying about 15,000 as well. So 30,000 a month. Ukraine is firing 90,000. Now, okay, this is Europe. This is the States. These are big countries. They've got reserves and so on. But at a certain point, they're going to have to start switching production from whatever it was doing to making more artillery shells because you can't run your stocks down to zero and so on. So you're going to see greater pressure on inflation 
is my view. I don't think it's an accident that we've, we 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 went up to four and four and a quarter percent or so on the U.S. ten year. We came down a bit, we expected, and now we're back over four percent again. Mm. And I think we're going to five percent, and you know maybe we go to seven percent, you know eight percent. It depends how it how it works out. So if that happens, you get to the point where the Bank of Japan is simply overwhelmed. Yeah. So that's my that's my best guess, but you know, it is a guess. It could go the other way. Since you mentioned about Europe and what's going on, Ukraine and Russia and all that, what's your prediction about how this ends? You probably don't want to know. I think the the way we're at at the moment is you've got a war which can only end badly at the moment. So one one way is that Russia wins, so he takes over Ukraine, and next day or whatever he goes into a NATO country. Poland or whatever, because he's on a mission. He said you know, the biggest tragedy of the 20th century was the loss of the Russian Empire. He didn't say the Russian Empire, he said the Cold, the Cold the Berlin Wall and so on. But he wants to reclaim those countries that Russia took after the war. So that's what he wants to do. If he goes into Poland, he's going into a NATO country, then, you know, that's probably a nuclear war. Equally, of course, if Ukraine were to win, then what does he have to lose? He's an old man. He's lost his dream. He's going to get pushed out by somebody else. Push the button. Mm. So the best outcome of this is to play for time, which is you give Ukraine enough to keep them in the game, but not enough to win. Right. And that, I think, is the, is the military strategy at the moment. And you know, I've been on many deals and so on, and many rescues and so on in the financial markets. I went on one which went on for about three or four years. We really couldn't see a way in which it would ever be resolved. And the guy who was running it, it was a very large company, very large company, one of the sort of Fortune 50 companies, and it was on the edge of bankruptcy for four years. And every Monday morning, we had a meeting with a senior guy. We would start, well, ladies and gentlemen, we've survived another week. Mm. And then... Almost out of the blue, something happened to change the dynamics. And we went, ah, oh, we could get a signature there. We could get that done there. We could get that. Oh, we're out in the woods. Amazing. So you play for, play, play for time. Right. And the great analogy of this, of course, is Wellington. The listeners may not uh, remember this too well, but Wellington, who won the Battle of Waterloo, but 10 years before that, was in the Peninsula Wars in Spain and Portugal. And Parliament kept writing to him saying, you must engage Napoleon, you must fight, you must fight. And Wellington knew that if he did engage, he didn't have enough resources, he would lose. So he would write back to Parliament and say, I'm very sorry, we raced as fast as we could, we knew where we were going to go, but then unfortunately, oh, you can't believe how dreadful it was. And we just missed it. And they, you know, they kept, but in the end, that meant that he got to Waterloo, he won in Spain and everything, but he only won in Waterloo by about four or five hours. Yeah. Had the Prussians decided not to what march on, but had they decided to camp for the night, which they were perfectly entitled to do, Napoleon would have lost. Mm. So, you know, I, what, what I always think is one has to look at the detail of these things, because when you look back over history, and people will hopefully look back over history now, they'll say, oh, well, it was always going to be. Well, yeah, but something will turn up. Yeah. And that's where I think we are. I'm curious when uh, people talk about Putin's, you know, next move, I'm trying to think about 
Is he going to Finland and then on to Sweden? Is he going to Lithuania? Is he going to through Belarus to Poland and then on to Germany? Or is he going south to Romania? Where do you think is his desire? Well, I mean, what he wants is to reclaim the old Soviet Union. With that, he said many times. And so logically, if you, you know, you can go in, in any of those directions. Mm. Ukraine, he's always wanted, he's always seen as part of Russia. And so that was a logical thing. And he, he got away with Crimea. So mm. why wouldn't he do it? You know, got away with Georgia and so on. So, you know, I don't, I don't think he's terribly rational in his decision making. This is an emotional issue, you know. And people, when they make emotional decisions, as you know, in trading, will tend not to work out very well. So, I mean, he could do any of those. Yeah. But the point is, you have a NATO agreement. Finland is about to go. Sweden obviously hasn't got in because of Turkey, but Finland is there. So, you know, he does know if he goes into any of those NATO countries, then he will face stiff resistance. Unless, of course, Trump comes back into power in America, in which case... He gets a Trump thump. All right. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it and then tell us your story. Well, I thought about this and I I thought, you know, there's lots of bad investments that you make. I was was an oil market trader for ICI in Houston in the mid mid 80s. And a very wise trader said to me at that point, you have to remember, Paul, that all the academic evidence shows that the best traders in the world will get it right about 55% of the time. No, 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 it's 55%. Because there's only four boxes of any trade. One box is you get it right for the right reasons. Brilliant. You pat yourself on the back and so on. Another box is you get it right for the wrong reasons. Something happened. You've got a count, it's very quiet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I always thought that. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly what I thought about, but you know. Then the opposite of that is you got it right, but actually you missed something. And so you you were wrong, effectively. Mm. You know, your your judgment was wrong, or you know, your basic thesis was right, but something happened. Mm. And so you've only got those four boxes, and stuff does happen. You know, I was you know, it's, it's a terrible story, but you know, just to sort of make the point, I was trading puts just before 9-11. And obviously, I didn't know 9-11 was going to happen. And I thought, well, we're coming to the end of that cycle. So I'll sell my puts this morning and then I'll buy them back tomorrow because I think the market will probably bounce a bit. That afternoon, we had 9-11. Now, my judgment, you you can't anticipate 9-11s. Had I just held on to those puts for another three or four hours, not sold out trying to make a quick buck, you know, I would have made a lot more money. Mm. So it's terrible to say we're making a lot more money out of it's a tragedy, but I'm just giving an illustration. So my when I thought about this, and I think it's a very good idea that you've got here, Andrew, is when I started investing, I knew I didn't know what I was doing. And so I went, I was lucky enough to work for the UK's biggest company, ICI, and we had access to the best pension fund advisors and so on. And I'd be the sales rep selling, and I got pension, I got the notes from the analysts, and the analysts in those days were very good. Mm. And they would teach you things that you visiting the companies every week didn't realize. And so I went to one of those analysts and said, look, you know, I've got 
£20,000 now because I'm moving out of London up to the northeast with ICI. And so I, you know, I need to invest in order to cover because I know the houses outside London won't ever be. So, and they gave me a portfolio of eight businesses. And so I began to understand a bit of what was going on and you know, they just worked on. And a couple of years or so later, I started to think, oh, wait a minute. And there was a company I, I sort of kept an eye on for a while in the cinema business called Rank Cinema. And I thought, well, you know, it's paying a very high dividend. It's 10% paying, 10% dividend. It seems to have quite a lot of cash on the bank, but everybody hates it. But, you know, I, I mean, I go to the cinema a lot. We all go to the cinema, you know, and so on. Yeah. So I, I, put, I, I put a bit of money into that. And then my bank, that West Bank, you know, wrote to me and said, we're very happy. We've got to stop broking on. Very happy to give you a, an expert review of your portfolio. Oh, that would be nice. You know, so I, I trucked along to see them, and they said, you know, oh, you've got eight very well chosen. But, oh, we don't think much of, no, no, we don't like rank at all. Oh, no, no, no. Really? No, no, no. no, no not on our list at all. Oh, dear. I, you know, well, we think you ought to sell that. But, of course, it went, went tenfold. <laughs> so what's the lesson we take away from this? The lesson we take away from this is that there's no substitute for judgment. And mm. the key to success, I think, in anything is persistence. That if you've made a judgment and you think you're right, yes, you listen to other people, but what you have to distinguish, and this has been the whole of my career, is between opinion and knowledge. Mm. So I, you know, but for 20 years, I lived in Manchester. My boys were at the right age and we went to watch Manchester United play football. Right. So I have a reasonable idea of what you know about Manchester United and so on because I watch them we watch them every month and of course you know you can understand two boys growing up teenagers and so on yeah that was fantastic so I, I have what I would call an informed opinion about what's happening you know, in terms of the buying I know of course Jim Ratcliffe well he's in the chemical industry I've known Jim for, for 20 years so I've got him but do I actually understand what's happening here no I don't mm. I really don't but I can chat to you, you know, we go to, go to a bar or whatever. We, I can chat to you about Manchester United forever. Right? <laughs> so I'm very convincing because I probably know a bit more than you do. Yep. And this is the problem, that you get an awful lot of people who know a bit more than you do about something, but they don't actually know what they're talking about. Yeah. And what we follow all the time is we tend to be early with our judgments. And I can tell you, when we started to talk about a financial crisis, but the first time we did it was the end of 2005 in a letter in the Financial Times. And, you know, we went on from there, digging our own grave. And even in September, October 2008, there were very senior clients, very senior clients indeed, managing directors, chairmen, and so on, who were saying, Paul, look, we really like what you do. Your team is great, and so on. But this idea that what's happened at Wall Street and Lehman Brothers is going to affect the economy Look, Paul, you're just losing credibility. For goodness sake, one guy actually, you know, thinking he was helping me, came up to me in early October and said, look, I can show you our order book for the fourth quarter. It's the strongest order book we've ever had. So please stop it, Paul, before mm. you lose all credibility. So, you know, you have to be prepared to go through that because otherwise, you know, you could have thrown it all away at that moment. Mm. Let me, I, I just love the opinion is not knowledge and everybody's got opinion, but not everybody Ooh. has knowledge. Yeah. 
So I think that's a great takeaway. Let me ask you for a young person who's coming up in the world, whether it's investing, whether it's business, whether it's you know forecasting, what's a resource that you'd recommend for them to to strengthen their their abilities or their knowledge, you know, in the areas that you know a lot about? Well, I think what I've always done is I read. Mm. You know, read, reading is a, a much maligned pursuit. You know, you can get everything you need on Twitter or whatever and so on. But no, I, I, I read, you know, it sounds crazy, but this is, this is, it, we, well, well, I'm going to answer the question another way. When I was young, in the, you know, back in the 1800s, now, in, <laughs> in the 1980s, I worked for one of the best companies in the world. And I was a sales rep. And we were taught that you had to look around the landscape. So you had to try and understand what was happening on exchange rates. You had to understand what was happening in oil markets. You had to try and understand what was happening in geopolitics. You had to try and understand what was happening even in your own industry. I was selling to the paint and measuring industry and you know, the, to detergents and so on. So I had to try and understand that. And you had to understand general politics and finance and so on. And so you were forever scanning the landscape. Now, when you got into the super cycle and when you got into the absurdities of the central banks, all of that disappeared because you didn't have to know, because don't worry, anytime it goes wrong, we'll just print another trillion dollars. So don't worry, everything. Well, now we're back, we're going back to this world of the pre-super cycle. And, you know, read everything you can and begin to assess. We used to do this at school. You know, when I was 14, 15, mm. the English master would bring in all the papers and he'd get us to read the same story written in six or seven different papers. And at home, you, you know, your parents usually got one paper, so you got that view, whatever it was. Suddenly you saw, oh, my goodness. And that's what you have to do. You have to read. Mm. You know, I, I read Nikkei. I read Kaishin. I read the Wall Street Journal. I read Financial Times. I read the New York Times and so on. I read them every day. Mm. You know, what they cover, what they don't cover, how they cover it, and so on. And so you begin to think, oh, wait a minute, that's quite interesting. Mm. And what I always find is that something on page six or ten or something like that, you read it and you think, oh, didn't know that. I wonder what that means. Mm. You know? And the question lingers in your mind. And so my advice would be, Read as much as you can, as much as you can. You've got families and everything else. I understand all that. I've been through it. But read as much as you can and allow yourself to think, well, that was interesting. I wonder what that means. Yep. Because very often it's those little stories that a good journalist has picked up and they don't know what it means either, but they just thought, you know, I think this is worth pushing past the editor. Mm. And, you know, out it comes. Yep. You know? And so then you've got a bit of background. And then when it starts to become more important, then you can begin to look at it. Great advice. Last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months? Ah, well, at my age, my number one goal is actually, uh, you know, you'll understand my kids and my grandkids, not forgetting my wife, of course. <laughs> She's been my number one goal for quite some years now. And yeah, so we're, we're lucky enough. Our kids, of course, have had, you know, they, were, they were late having kids themselves. So we had, we had two last year. And now this year, we're having another two. So, you know, I say to them, but they don't like this coming. It's like buses, you know, you wait for ages and suddenly they all turn up at once. Come in threes. 
<laughs> there you go. Well, that sounds great. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined the mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Paul, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Well, it'd be great to uh, And next time I hope you're, you invite me to Bangkok, all expenses paid so that we can do this in style. Oh, wow. That sounds exciting. I look forward to it. And we'll get an audience here to listen in to us. <laughs> Love it. That's a Thank wrap. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Andrew. Yep. That's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside. <laughs>